Welcome to A Retro Perspective, a video game podcast that takes a look at long-running franchises, one game at a time. This season, we're taking a look at Nintendo's flagship IP, The Legend of Zelda. With that out of the way, I'm Carly. And I'm Kyler. Let's get started. The greatest game ever made, the highest Metacritic score of all time, the standard bearer, the albatross. Transitioning from the Super Nintendo to the Nintendo 64 in the third dimension, Ocarina of Time immediately cemented itself as an industry game changer. It felt like the Zelda series was limitless, that it could only go up from here. The passage of time has been less kind to the 1998 classic. It can be easy with a modern lens to reduce it to a series of formulas, just a link to the past made 3D. But what seems so obvious now was a revelation in the late 90s, and when you look at the game's development, it's amazing that it stuck the landing at all. Ocarina of Time has always been surrounded by a conversation about expectations. Originally devised as two games, one for the Nintendo 64 on cartridge and a larger game for the 64 disk drive, fans have spent years clamoring for features that never made the 1998 release. Ocarina of Time's beta has become its own part of the lore, with fans scouring debug menus and rumored beta cartridges for secrets. Before the game even saw its release date, it faced an upward climb. It had to live up to the hype and counteract the present disappointment. The years of experimentation and trial and error paid off for Nintendo when the game was finally released to rave reviews. For many players, it was their first introduction to what an open-world game could be while being free of the clunkiness that hounded so many of its contemporaries. Hyrule Field, Z-Targeting, Time Travel, The Horse. A certain air of nostalgia hangs over the game, and for some it tends to get by more on what it promised than what it delivered. But it's that promise that keeps Ocarina of Time alive in the memory. Every now and then the seams begin to show. Even the 3DS remake can't hide the age of its jagged environments or the barrenness of its landscapes. What made Ocarina exciting wasn't what it was, it was the promise of what games could be, what they would be. A whole new world was opening up, and it was going to be worth exploring. So Kyler, first things first, do we think the game lives up to its hype? That's a good question, and I think I think where I'd even start with this first is making a distinction between something that is overhyped and something that is overrated, like considering it at the time of its release, as far as hype goes. Yeah, I think there's almost no question that this game met those expectations. There's a reason why it's still so fondly remembered, uh, even to this day. Uh, and I think by and large, yeah, the impact it had from from that, I think it absolutely... Uh, met the expectations in many ways it was that like all of its goals that it set to achieve the ways it set to impact the industry I think those are aspects that it absolutely has met those expectations um, in a way that many games really just don't I mean even then and just even now especially so to, to point out the difference between something that is overrated versus overhyped I think overrated, it's, I mean, it, for one, I have to say it's overused. This is getting a little out of hand here, but um, overrated, I would say, is a phrase that's used to typically describe something. I mean, it's not used this way, and I think it's used incorrectly for that reason, but overrated, I think, best fits a game whose original perception does not actually match the product as it was received at the time. So it's something that is given excessive praise for something that doesn't ultimately like it ultimately didn't deserve it at its time of release um and it's been basically given more credit than it was actually due versus overhyped is 
something that's continued to be lauded as like a game changing experience that ultimately like it's, you know, being elevated to a place that literally can't be, cannot be reached. And Ocarina of Time may be similar to like something like Final Fantasy VII, which is not a game I've played, but a game that gets a similar kind of treatment. Neither of these games um, should be considered overrated because their impact is is obvious. Their impact was obvious. Their their terms like in terms of quality as far as what they delivered in their in their time of release. But there's is, there's not really any point questioning it at all. It it is. Absolutely, a games. They're both games that met their expectations, and I mean, Ocarina of Time, Ocarina of Times case, just the way it impacted, the way worlds are constructed. Ocarina of Time is not in any case overrated. It might be, I, I would call it not overhyped in a sense like, oh, it's bad now. It's just that what people make of it these days and tell others about it, like there, there's no question that some people have probably been disappointed coming to it if they didn't, if they came to it like you know, 15 years after the fact, and. That's kind of just inevitable, um, and I don't think I don't even think Ocarina should even be approached that way. So, I just wanted to kind of bring this into discussion first before anything because I think that's an important distinction to make about Ocarina. Well, I'm gonna come firmly out in the camp and saying that it deserves every bit of praise that's been heaped on to it, and anyone who disagrees can fight me <laughs> in the parking lot. I mean, to be sure, I am definitely biased because of, well, the N64 was like the console that I grew up with and I didn't, my only experience with 2D gaming as a kid was like the handhelds from like a owning a system standpoint. So I was like really born and raised on like really blocky 3D games. And I didn't have, you know, we didn't have a PlayStation either. So it was just like the Nintendo 64. So like Nintendo fangirl forever, I guess. But <laughs> um, so there's that point of like, I don't, I don't really have any true concept of what it was like to see the world become 3D. Like that's not a gap that I experienced. I just like came out of the womb that way, I guess. Uh, but I don't, I mean, I think it's ridiculous that a game this old, it has no right to be as good as it is. That's what I kind of feel about it is like, I mean, part of it is it's easier for me to keep going back to it. Cause I have like an emotional connection with it and I've played it so many times and whatnot that I don't really see the clunkiness because I'm so used to it that it doesn't even really register to me as like, oh, this is kind of ugly. Like, I don't even really care about that. I think it just makes it easier for me to like, just like put my imagination to work and sort of appreciate it for what it is. I mean, the other side of the coin is that I've played the 3DS remake and I haven't played the N64 version since the remake came out. So it's been a long time since I played the N64 version, but I watched a ton of like long play material to like go through and like try to remember what everything looks like. And I, I mean, I partially played the remake because it was just more convenient to me because I didn't want to spend $10 to like dredge up Ocarina of Time on a virtual shop somewhere when I could just play the copy I already have on a 3DS. <laughs> so that was easier. Uh, but also I think it's cool to me because I feel like you get to see 
sort of the true vision that they had for the game. Like, I feel like it allows me to play the game and really see it for exactly what it is instead of like playing it and getting bogged down in like the ugly pre-rendered backgrounds and sort of like the weird 2D walls of Hyrule Field. It's just easier for me to like immerse myself in it and kind of see the game for what it is, which I think is more interesting and fun anyways. And I think that they just, they totally took the art style that was always in all of that concept art and they beautifully applied it. So it's just kind of like, I don't know, I feel like I'm seeing what they're, what the developers intended. And so I like playing it that way. <laughs> yeah, when it comes to my own experience of this game, I mean, we, I mean, we, you know, we lived in the same house, so we kind of shared that same experience. Um, but I mean, even like my exposure to older games, I don't, I don't really recall playing the original Legend of Zelda until after, uh, until after Ocarina of Time, sometime later, because of a friend that had an NES. Uh, and so Ocarina of Time was, I mean, yeah, Ocarina of Time is that that first Zelda game for me. Um, I mean, it is an experience to me that's still that is still evergreen in my mind. It's not my favorite game of all time. It's not even my my top three in that sense. It's kind of a weird thing to say about that after calling it evergreen. Um, and there's some ways there's at least one or two other Zelda games I prefer, but Ocarina of Time is that game that has been just so embedded in my memory that I'm like, I'm pretty sure that literally a piece of my brain is in fact just Ocarina of Time. It's just, <laughs> it's just committed to it. My, I will get Alzheimer's in, you know, my eighties and nineties. And yet Ocarina of Time is always there. Sorry, wife and kids. It's <laughs> put a controller in your hands. You'll still be able to go through it. No I'll problems. Still... I will still know all the all the little tricks, all the little shortcuts, all of that. And so, yeah, so there's a, there's a, a maybe perhaps a little bit of bias, but yeah, also as I said, it hasn't stopped me from preferring other Zeldas in a way. But Ocarina of Time, I think by and large is why it's been such an impactful game. Yeah, it does have to do with the scope of it and yeah, I'm completely with you that the 3DS remake, it I just would best describe it as a game that effectively looks like what I had always had like like imagined it had been as a kid um it's such a weird like playing the 3ds version now is kind of weird because it's like like playing that kind of fulfillment of it that now it's like the the those kind of like I guess that imagination of what I thought it was is not as strong anymore and that's not even like not even a bad way just more just like oh yeah this is this is what I kind of always imagined it to be yeah, for sure. It's hard for me to remember, like, what the N64... Like, I really had to, like, go back and, like, watch videos of it. But I think also partially before the remake came out, we never really saw the, the N64 version for what it was. We were always adding all of these layers onto, like, kind of what we imagined it being, too. So <laughs> I think that just makes it more complicated because it's, like, you had to bring a lot of imagination to those older games like pretty much everything especially like pre like ps2 gamecube area pre ps2 gamecube era and like you just yeah in order to experience it and immerse yourself into it there's still that level of abstractness so you're your so your imagination gets a lot more work <laughs> but now that this like beautifully realized version is out i'm like oh like i don't have to think anymore i just play it <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, 
not even think anymore. That's kind of a good way of putting it. I mean, <laughs> it makes it sound like it's a bad thing, but it's, you know, in a sense, it's, I don't know, it's, it's I mean, not. it's something that I miss about older games, but it's also that thing, I don't know, I, I kind of think when you're a kid, you have a lot more of these, you have these ideas of like everything that you see and you love, you really want like the fo- the most realized version of that thing. Like the way that you, you want it to like exist in real life. You want it to look as good as it can look. And I think like realistic Zelda, like so much of that came from like, we just want to see it. We just want to see Link look really realistic and cool and all of these things. And like, you could really impart a lot of that feeling onto Ocarina of Time. Now it's funny to see the remake because it's kind of anime and it's very bright, (laughs) which the game, like the art always was for sure. But because of that abstractness, you could really, and because like the N64 is just kind of grungy and dull, you could really push more of an idea on like, of like grittiness and realism onto the game than like ever existed. I think like, you know, it would be years down the line before I feel like people finally had that part of it all realized. And I think like a lot of that really starts with this game. And probably a lot of it because of that abstractness. It's so interesting to imagine a world where graphics were so good that this was the version that people could have been given from the jump. But you can read a lot of different ideas into the original game because it's kind of like, I don't know, when video games are sort of that crude, it's kind of like reading a book that the individual reader will conceive of these more richly detailed worlds and ideas of what those things look like, you know, and then however it comes to fruition, like people will disagree. But everything in the Zelda series style, I think you could look at the N64 game and be like, yeah, it could go really any direction from here, which Hmm. I think is really interesting. That gets more to aesthetics, but this is going to be a long meandering conversation because there's so much to talk about and it's like so hard to compartmentalize all of these different facets of the game. I mean, we even have to talk, what we don't have to talk about is on the most important world. It's not the most important thing in the world, but you know, also just the nitty gritty of the game and just <laughs> liking it and the things that bother us and whatnot. You know, yeah. oh, that's also a conversation, so. <laughs> I don't even know where to really, <laughs> to, to start with a lot of this, but I mean, even, yeah, even just talking about that, that's, there is a whole conversation to be had there and the, the implications and the imagination that just goes into, it's like, wow, should we, should we have a retro revitalization of, of chunky 3D graphics? The answer is probably not. I don't, I don't see how it could be accepted nowadays but yeah well, now i get upset anytime <laughs> i see like you know the the smallest bit of texture repeat I'm like this kills my immersion it's like okay <laughs> yeah. yeah i grew up with this stuff i mean yeah okay so let's kind of get into the the nitty-gritty and away from all of the uh, philosophical content and let's just talk about just our basic like likes and dislikes. What do we enjoy most about the game? Where do we feel like there's unfulfilled potential or things that bother us? Or like, what what are the choices that they made that we were like, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I like it. Or I really do like it. And I'm impressed. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, well, 
I both like and dislike the way this game opens. I, I'm trying <laughs> I'm trying to not think ahead to later games too much, which is very difficult with Ocarina, more than any of the previous games. But I like and dislike the opening. Um, following up after, you know, pretty much literally any of the previous Zelda games, this is probably one of the longer openings that we have. It's like a three and a half minute uh, text crawl introducing us to, to Link and then finding out that this is being narrated by the, uh, the Deku tree before he sends Navi off. And nowadays, like, it's, it's really brisk, but, like, you know, even, even still getting into it, it's always a thing that, I, like, every time I start the game, unless I'm, like, actively invested in, like, just actually like, just kind of refreshing on it again, I usually am just like, all right, I guess I'll just, like, you know, sit back, drink water, maybe eat some chips or something. I don't know. <laughs> Um, but I'm usually just kind of camping out, doing something else during that time frame up until Navi, you know, you know, comes over to wake you up. But then the thing that I do like as far as the actual opening is the way that for our first introduction into 3D Zelda, I, I love that the very like theme of exploration is even ingrained in the opening of the game where it's like, okay, right now the most you've been told is we have to go see the great Deku tree. You're like, okay, that's that's cool. Um, and then at that point, it's kind of just up to you to start talking. You, you're, you've clearly given a restricted boundary of play to work with, but you're informed at that point to talk to people until you find out what your next objective is before you can truly accomplish that. And I love how even this early in the game, especially with a thing that's effectively a tutorial, and it does have some blatantly tutorialized things, but even the way they're handled is the player has to go find this stuff out. There was a very clear commitment to this kind of uh, the way that the player would explore in this game. And I love that the beginning does this like this. And it also means that once you know, it kind of harkens back to the original Legend of Zelda in that sense, that once you know, you can just reach the objectives and then just move on. And you don't have to be held up by anything when replaying the game. It's just, it's really nice that it's built, like it's really subtle. And so I really, I really appreciate that apart from the opening text scroll, this game I like that that just starting Ocarina of Time is like the easiest, one of the easiest things about it and probably one of my favorite things about it. It's just, it's easy to start. There's, it's just, that's like kind of the most important thing to me here in this. So that's something I really, really love. Even if that, again, that text, that three and a half minute text crawl, which doesn't <laughs> sound like much. Especially and, in the original, <laughs> it's the text speed is a lot. Uh, dreadfully slow. Yeah, something to do with the way, oh, well, it's because of the, it's because the text speed wasn't changed between the Japanese to the international release, so we get, <laughs> and they have they have fewer characters per you know per phrase per sentence, so it's like oops, should have thought about that a little bit more. <laughs> Big wolf. Um, yeah. Yeah, I agree with that assessment. I think that the opening of the game is really smart, and that they put you in an environment where they teach you all of Link's moves and all of his skills, and they also put you in an environment where, I mean, until you get the sword and shield, you, I mean, I guess you could maybe, like, go to Lost Woods and get killed somehow, but, like, if you get <laughs> killed before getting to the Deku Tree, like, I don't, I can't help you. Like, you're seeking out <laughs> problems, and that's your own fault. Um, I guess you could get hit by the boulder, but I don't know, just, like, oh, well. Sucks. You get hit by it 12 times. Yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they, they pretty much set you up where it's really hard to die. You aren't really thrown into the fire. 
you know, your job is to collect rupees and talk to people and crawl in holes. And it, it really like, it lets you freely walk around. It's not like there's anyone by the hole being like, hey, Link, um, there might be a sword over here. You know, like <laughs> there's there's like one cutscene at the very beginning where like surreal like waves to you and otherwise you just like walk around and whatnot. So it's pretty unintrusive. And it's also one of those things that like, I think that this should exist because they had to teach, and this is the biggest thing about this game for me, they had to teach a whole group of people how to play 3D games for the first time and how to translate 2D Zelda to 3D Zelda. So maybe sometimes like today we'll be playing things with this game and go, ah, does it feel a little too easy or is it too little, is it too simple? Is it too basic? You know, is it too explanatory? But they were really just kind of walking into the realm of unknown. They had no idea how difficult this game would be for people to grasp or how easy it would be. And so they kind of just like threw everything in the kitchen sink at it, you know, to make it as straightforward as possible. And it's still funny to like, I had friends in college who like sat down and played this game and like couldn't figure out where to get the sword. So maybe you just get raised on Zelda games and it seems really, really easy to you. Um, I do think, and I know this is kind of talking about future games, but I'll go ahead and make this point in this episode because I'll probably forget to from here on out, but I will emphatically say that the reason this opening works is because it's quick and it means a lot to leave the forest for the first time because it's the first time this is ever happening in a Zelda game in this way. And it's also just that like, when you get out of town, you're out and it's over. There is no more on rails. You can go wherever you want. All you, you know, whenever you replay the game and boot it back up, you just know, I just have to get to Hyrule Field. And when I get to Hyrule Field, nothing else matters anymore. <laughs> and it's fine. And the game starts. So <laughs> it's not, and I don't think this opening to me, this opening isn't about being cool and cinematic, even though it has moments that totally work that way. And like Hyrule Field hits hard for so many, you know, different reasons. You know, some just as a product of the game's time and other parts just, I think it's really good design and it's really great music and it's awesome. But Zelda games don't need this. This does not need to be a convention. And now, you know, I look silly because of course a Zelda game has broken this convention and it has done away with it. But I will just say to everything that comes after this, it was completely unnecessary. You didn't need to do it. The only reason that being in this gated community of an area <laughs> mattered was because you didn't know how to fight and they didn't want to break you down and make you throw your controller against the wall. They were trying to be really, really nice to you. And even then they made it relatively brisk and they had to teach you how to play a game. In 2013, 2010, 2008, we don't need to be taught how to play 3D games. Yeah. <laughs> okay, just saying that right now. Yeah. You know, this, this Ocarina of Time's opening does not exist to be like, oh, it's such a cool setup. It's really gonna pay off in the end. They didn't give a crap about that. <laughs> that was not the point of this. Anytime that this game like stumbles into like cinema and art, I think it was because they literally fell into it and were like, oh, like that's interesting. And I don't mean that in any sort of insult of like, they aren't capable of like art or cinema. Just that like, sometimes the cool things about video games is when you put interesting characters, art, music, and scenarios together, they make interesting things happen. And you don't, you know, just let it do its thing. 
So, <laughs> and that's my Zelda opening soapbox. The opening of this game is really perfect. It looks less perfect in hindsight because it was the start of a really, really dumb thing. Yeah. One of the, the major things, I don't know, that I'm interested in talking about with this game, because I, I started writing down a lot of things of like noticing sort of shortcomings or sort of like unfulfilled potential with the game. You know, a few of them would just be like, I always find the medallion thing annoying because it says that like each sage adds their power to yours and then they don't. <laughs> really? Oh. It doesn't really do anything. Yeah. And so that was just always a bummer because it always felt like, because the game says that they add their power to yours. And it's a little bit different than uh, the previous games because you were collecting Triforce shards, you were like dispelling barriers, um, collecting instruments, and then in uh, Link to the Past, you were like getting the stones so you could get the sword, like in this game, and then you also were like rescuing the maidens to like undo a seal or whatever. Yeah. In this one, it's more like you're sort of collecting these medallions and stuff, so it feels a little more like within the text of the story that they should do something to benefit you. And originally they were, and then they just like, you know, it was one of those things that they had to cut. So yeah. that was supposed to be a thing and it didn't happen. So that's always kind of been glaring for me. And then like the biggest one is like, I think my favorite thing about the game is how when you become an adult, it feels like there's all this evil to dispel. And there's like shadows everywhere and every place that was like cool as a kid has like now been taken over or screwed up in some way. And you go out and you fix it. And... I find Zora's Domain to be very disappointing in that regard. <sighs> yeah. I think it's like the least well thought out. And just the fact that like, it's the only one that like after you clear it, like it doesn't matter. Yeah. The only thing that, that actually, um, that only thing that actually changes is the snow effect in Zora's river disappears closer to the waterfall. So it's just gone, but that's, that's it. Oh, wow. I didn't even notice that's that. <laughs> it's the kind of thing that you'd have to be deliberately going. Up. It's also I mean, extremely frustrating because it is so difficult to fast travel there as an adult. Yeah. <laughs> because they they block the Lake Hyla entrance because they never unfreeze it. I don't know. That's just like one of those areas oh, that like, yeah, that really sucks too. Oh. I get that Lake Hyla it, fills up, but like whatever, who cares? <laughs> yeah, and what also I guess I guess in hindsight it's to make the trading quest run work more, but. They also... Yeah, it's not a also, good enough reason. <laughs> no, well, because, I mean, if you try to warp, like, if you try to warp with a warp song to Lake Hyla, just to try to, you know, get the stuff there faster, this, the game automatically is like, nope, and then sets your timer to zero. So it's like, well, they could have just done the same thing with shortcuts, and then then at that point, the player would be like, hmm, okay, I guess I got to do this for real then. Yeah, so, I don't know. It feels like a real missed opportunity to me. And I guess, like... There are certain aspects of the game that, like, the more I play it, it kind of feels like there's so much promise as a child, and then as you become adult Link and whatnot, and maybe part of it is just, like, you clear stuff, and so it's, like, you know, it sort of is what it is, but it kind of feels like you hit the end of the game early in some ways, because anywhere that, if you clear a dungeon, stuff might change in that area, but that's it. It's not like it really affects other places. So it's not like yeah. the game has like any triggers where it's like, oh, when you beat the Shadow Temple, you should really go back to... 
And like, I, I mean, it just kind of can't be that developed. So I sort of get it. But it kind of feels like as you churn through each dungeon as an adult, it kind of feels like more of the game is kind of just like dying off a little bit. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. I mean, the, even the general impact of stuff continues to kind of fall off over time. I mean, the you'd think as bad it is that Bongo Bongo is free. You're like, that's terrible because he completely just wrecked Sheik and I. And it seems like we're in pretty bad trouble. And the whole place was on fire. And then it's just like, all right, you do it, and it's like, what happens? The gray clouds go away, which is great because I didn't, I didn't like it being cloudy in <laughs> Kakariko. But that's, uh, I mean, that's, it's that's also annoying because like nobody mentions it. Ever. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, I guess yeah. like the Gorons are also kind of like that. They basically every single Goron you talk to after you beat the dungeon, I think, is basically just like thank you. No one yeah, says which is. Considering as a kid how much, like, how life, like, how lively, maybe not so much lively, but just how much, like, their dialogue was to point out very particular things that were meant to clue you into things. I get that, like, there isn't as much of that as an adult, but, like, there, then there's just copy-pasting text because we got to move on to the next dungeon or <laughs> is what it feels like. Yeah, that's, like, kind of the bummer for me is I feel like I kind of... And... I don't know. I mean, it's a small complaint. I don't know if my expectations are too high or whatnot, or if people just like don't care about talking to everybody. And I mean, most of the times I play through this game, I don't care because I'm just playing the game on autopilot. This time, you know, like we've been making it a point to like do everything and talk to every NPC and talk to them a hundred thousand times, which I did. <laughs> I talked to everyone and I talked <laughs> to them enough to see repeats of all their dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Sometimes it's surprising, but then other times. You know, I guess I would have some curiosity and I would seek something out and I would be surprised sometimes at it not really being rewarded of being like, oh, like that guy over there is definitely gonna have something to say about the town being on fire. And, <laughs> you know, no one says anything. So it's just like yeah. little stuff like that where you can sort of see the cracks. Um, but I think like the thing that's kind of about it for me that I think because of like the 64 disc drive and all of the like, it's two games and, you know, all the developmental aspirations that they had. And it took them a long time to, like, make this game and figure it out. And I don't blame them. Uh, it's kind of a lot. This game went through so many iterations. It's really, if you haven't looked at it, I definitely recommend. There are, you know, several different types of, like, Zelda 64 beta documentaries that you can find on YouTube. Um, all really, really interesting to, like, see the screenshots. And... I think it's easy with beta content to sort of get in this realm of, because it's something that you haven't experienced, it automatically seems like, why was that cut? That looks better. I want to play that. Where's the version of the game? And, and I think it's less because the version you have is unsatisfying and it's more like you just want to play more of it. So yeah. you want more stuff. And if you can find it, you want to play it. Never got that light temple. <laughs> yeah, I know. The light <laughs> temple. The temple of time. It's a temple where, you know. There's yeah. <laughs> things like that, you know, people thinking they can find the Triforce and all kinds of stuff. And if a game was loved in this era, it had some sort of, you can unlock, do X, Y, and Z if you do X, Y, and Z craziness. Because we also didn't have the internet to be like, no, that's not true. Or just like the extensive like data mining and stuff that people do now. I mean, even if people were doing that, we didn't have access to that information because we weren't really on the internet. So it's yeah. just really, it's just a different game now. Like people... 
really gut games for their secrets. So part of it is like that sort of mythos. And another part of it is people waited so long for this game. And then also it was the only Zelda game for a long time. And it was the only 3D Zelda game. And it's not like the N64 had tons of games and especially not tons of games like this one. You know, you play one game for like a year as a kid because games are really expensive. And you play that thing over and over and over and over again. And so I think part of it is like when you're playing something so much and it's like really like the only thing that's in your life, you really like, you're really hunting, like you're exploring like every sort of secret to this game that exists. And then I think the more that you play it, the more you can kind of be disappointed and be like, oh, like that looks so cool. I wish I could play this version or that version or the other thing. And so I, I do think to an extent that some of this sort of Ocarina of Time is unfinished and, you know, this and that and the beta's out there and the beta's better and all of that sort of mythology. When I look at the beta footage and all of these old screenshots, it honestly, I'm just like, wow, like we got really lucky. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they made all the choices that they made because... Yeah, some of those huge, the idea of like a huge castle town with no pre-rendered background sounds great, but it honestly looks like crap. Like some of these ideas are like, oh, that looks cool. A lot of it looks terrible and like definitely <laughs> shouldn't have been utilized. Like, yeah. It feels like a game that was pared down to what it had to be to exist, to be completed. I wouldn't even see be completed in the sense that they had to ship something, so they just had to get over it and do it. I just mean the sense that they had to, like, find a scale. You know, there was a time where they thought that the game would have to be, like, Super Mario 64 and exist in, like, a castle and you'd have to jump through paintings and stuff. Like, this game went through a lot. What we got... The fact that what we got is playable and enjoyable to this day, I think that's, like, the wildest thing. Ever. And the fact that there was no real blueprint for what they were doing, it's mind-boggling. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think that's why its influence is so far-reaching and why it just looms so large yeah. is because it never really felt to me like people were ready to move on from it and say, that was a good game. It was really like so enduring that it was like, oh, there has to be more here. Like, you know, where is... I want more of this. I want more in addition to this. Where like... Even now, if it was like somebody found an additional dungeon, I don't know, people would lose their minds. Like it's still at that level of like, I don't know, and maybe it's because it's such a good game and such a good experience that you just want it to keep going more than other ones. Like, I don't really know what it is, or maybe it's just the combination of like when it came out and how much of a landmark it was for 3D gaming, the age that a lot of people were when they played it, how long it's been since then, like all of these factors that I guess that always made the game feel bigger than it was and have always kind of captured, you know, people's imaginations and had them dreaming of, you know, I don't know, I guess what it could be. And it, it's still special in that way to a lot of people. And it's really interesting. <laughs> Before we talk about presentation, I just want to ask one more question. We've ended up saying a lot of glowing things about this game. And while I don't necessarily think that any clunkiness from it is really a huge mark against the game itself from what it was made, I think it's worth talking about uh, what are the things in this game that we feel haven't aged very well? Well, certainly the the, the first person aiming 
was was not very good in the original. It Ugh. worked for what it was, but it was very chunky, and some of that has to do with the N64 controller's stick. But even even like the later ports of the game, or even if you try to emulate it now, it's still it's still it's not it's not comfortable. And it's clear that I mean, this is still around a time when that kind of when just first person as like a just concept and idea and how it's supposed to operate was kind of being more and more understood. Um, nowadays you play the 3DS version and you have, you have, I mean, even like the regular stick control is smooth as you can expect, but then you have gyro control, which is just, you know, freaking amazing. Yeah. Gyro but is a gift to us all. Going, yeah. But going back to the, the, the original and the, the, with the stick sensitivity that you had to deal with, with it. No, it's, it's not, it's not very comfy. It's a thing that you use fairly often, but it's not like they're not expecting you to make twitch decisions for the most part with it. And when they do, it's because you're exclusively doing just that. So it's not it's not the worst thing, but it's probably one of the more overtly clunky things. Um, this was also just the era of well, like when people were trying to figure out. It's like okay, camera, uh, how does this work? So Mario sixty four gave us this weird semi forty five degrees spinning around camera, except sometimes it won't because who knows why. <laughs> <laughs> and the camera just sometimes it makes sense. And Ocarina is just like, well, we don't. We don't really have any free buttons, and we know that you don't have three hands, so we're not going to make you use the D-pad. So we'll go ahead and just use the L button to kind of target behind you, which is something I'm, I'm might be really, really weird to anyone coming to it these days where right stick camera control was just a given. I'm very much used to it, but it's it's not something that, like, if I had the ability to move the camera around with the with like a right analog stick, I would I would happily take it. Yeah, for uh, sure. No question. And I mean that's what Majora's Mask 3D gave us and then retros- retroactively never added back into Ocarina of Time 3D, which uh, makes me sad. <laughs> uh, maybe someone will find a way to port it through hacking or something. Please someone do it. That'd be really cool. <laughs> but that that's something that I think even for just taking in your like surroundings, it kind of it is kind of a little bit of a bummer that you don't get to to do that. Um, L targeting is fine, or I guess Z target. Dang, I'm used to the 3ds version. Z targeting, okay. yeah. In this case, no. That I was gonna yeah. say that was my hot take. Was I think that the concept of Z targeting is cool. I don't really like how it's implemented in this game. As soon as, when I did all the research and like learned about how they came up with this and that I was kind of like fighting big stacks of enemies and that that would be possible because they would come at you one at a time. As soon as I really realized that, boy, did it bother me a lot. Like anytime hmm. I would have a fight with like two Stalfos or whatever in like the Shadow Temple and like in like Ganon's castle, I would just keep locked onto one and I would just watch and see what the other one was doing. Oh. And it kind of like, I don't know, it was one of those things where I felt like I really saw the cracks in the game. It took away so much danger because I just knew that like, yeah, there's two of them. That guy's not going to do anything to me. Yeah. Even if you stand and I've like put myself in situations. I'm like, I'm going to try to get hit by this guy. I'm going to stand right next to him and he won't do anything. And I mean, yeah, it, it would be, it could easily become annoying if they both could target you, but it's also one of those things where it's like, he really is literally just going to wait in line and wait for me to kill this other enemy and then attack me. I think keys are annoying because they're just like around and obnoxious. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, for not doing that, but also just because like hitting them in a 3D environment kind of sucks. 
Yeah. Just it's... in general, it's not very fun to like hit flying enemies, especially in the original with the analog stick aiming was so bad. Yeah, the aiming, the the camera. I mean, I don't know. When it comes to general, like, yeah, there's not like a old clunkiness to the game that's just like, yeah, you could play it, but it's kind of eh. It's like some maybe some of its design decisions, sure, but when it comes to like the general, just like it's kind of insane for a 98 game that it's the case and that's like it's just a big part of it that makes the game feel as timeless as it does but it's just like there's there's very very few things that make it feel like an old 3d game besides literally like the scope that they were able to work with at the time and that was it yeah i there might be like some stuff with like the quest line itself like i know people have gotten stuck getting into certain dungeons or getting around or figuring out what to do next. But it's one of those things that I honestly can't speak to at all because the memories of the game are so ingrained in me that I I have no idea if it's clear or not where to go. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> we just like, go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You just, and like, I tried to talk to people and get a sense of like, trying not to let my brain take me, but trying to let like curiosity and like, oh, what did that person say? Like, even if there were ways that I knew I could do things, I tried to do them explicitly in the way that the game said to do them instead. But even then, you know, I don't like. I feel like, I feel like as long as you're not, you know, coasting and just choosing not to pay attention to anything, then I think everyone gives you the information you need. Yeah, or play Saria's song. And then she gives you some direction from there. Although, to be fair, it's kind of easy to forget about Saria's song, too. But if it's something that you actually remember, then she does, you know, kind of works like uh, Olrira from Link's Awakening, in that sense. But I feel like, at least if you are if you have, like, the natural curiosity to talk to the other NPCs, that at least as a kid, you're generally rewarded for doing so. You're given a pretty good amount of information. I don't know. All I can think of is being, yeah, seven years old at the time and just being like, oh, yeah, of course. I just, I don't know, I just talked to, of course, I don't, I don't even remember at that point either. All I most I remember is st- not, is <laughs> getting stopped up at Goma because I didn't want to fight him <laughs> at the time. I didn't want to fight her at the time and then getting to the bottom of the well and being like, wow, I don't want to do this and getting to becoming an adult and being like, wow, I don't want to do this. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That sounds about right. Pretty much all those moments. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of moments as a kid being like, I don't want to do it. Yeah. Um, But I think I I saw somebody, I don't know, on Reddit or something made a really great point about, well, first off, if you're, if you're playing these games in the chronological order of when they were released, you know, your previous game was A Link to the Past. And A Link to the Past has way more like confusing, arbitrary stuff that then comes back to be incredibly important of like the flippers and uh, the ice rod and stuff like that, where it's kind of just not really emphasized at all, but then it's also necessary to like beat the game. So if you're kind of used to that sort of archaicness, then going into Ocarina of Time, it should feel pretty straightforward, I would think. For people who are really used to like modern Zelda or modern games, then if this is your first Zelda and you come back to it, then it might be more difficult. Um, and I saw someone kind of ask, you know, like how how did we play this game as kids? How are we how are we like six years old and beating this game? And they're like <laughs> grown people who are like getting stuck. Yeah. How does that work? And someone mentioned that 
you know, as a kid, there are certain things that are really magnified, like the spookiness of the game and like that barriers to beating things would be like your own sort of childish fear of them of, oh, I don't want to do that because I'm scared because it's scary or it's frightening or whatever. Like I always found the forest temple. I would just go to the fire temple first instead because <laughs> I, I had a really hard time as the, with the forest temple as a kid. Honestly, kind of still have a hard kind of still have a hard time with it, but <laughs> I think it's, you know, I get confused. Um, but, you know, I was always scared of Phantom Ganon. I thought he was so hard. He was harder than regular Ganon, which honestly probably still think that's true. That's, uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> but then there are other things where I think as adults playing games, we get way more caught up in like, well, that, well, that mechanic wasn't explained to me. So how was I supposed to know to, to do that? Why would I know to put a fish from Jabu Jabu? Because that's not a mechanic and the game didn't tell me. Yeah. There is a Zora that does tell you. But I, I get that line of thinking <laughs> of we are so used to having things laid out to us and experimentation not being rewarded. And I wouldn't say Ocarina of Time is particularly experimental, but just that sort of line of thinking of connecting the dots between this thing and that thing and how would I know to do X, Y, and Z. And like... The point was that as kids, you're much more willing to try anything and you're less willing to rule things out from the jump and say, well, that's not the solution because X, Y, Z. You just have like, oh, well, I wonder if I put a bug next to this. <laughs> like, what would happen? Yeah. You know, and I don't think as kids, kids, we weren't putting on the mask of truth and talking to every gossip stone looking for the answer. I mean, maybe I would never did that as a kid. I'm sure maybe some people who were like, really? intense really did, but you know i never even really thought about that feature at all it was just kind of like run around and like you know just kind of club it until it works <laughs> was sort of the mentality you know so i think that's something that you kind of have to if you haven't played this game before you kind of have to put in your inner child and be open to just, i don't just know just try stuff just yeah. trying stuff yeah so we already talked a bit about this, but let's go ahead and talk more in depth about the game's presentation. It's a <laughs> it's a first generation 3D game, so it's old. It is. It's old. <laughs> it's, it's just kind of to be expected, and I mean that, that's an understandable reason for not maybe wanting to come back to it as much. There seems to be like a resurgency in popularity for something like Super Mario 64, and I think that's because it's just it's Mario, and I mean it's still it's obviously it's chunky looking, but it accomplishes its goals. But with like Ocarina of Time, there's clearly an aspect to it that's just like, there's supposed to be a little, just a little bit more to this that's not quite here. And I think they did about as much as they could. I mean, they had to get this game down to 20 frames per second. And the previous generation of games, most of like a majority of SNES and Genesis games were 60 FPS. You get Super Mario 64, it's 30. You're like, okay, it's a fine concession. You get to Ocarina, 20 frames <laughs> per second. I don't know how I just go back and play the original to this day. And I do, but that's mainly because I'm playing stuff like the randomizer or different, or like certain pretty cool hacks. But apart from that, it's 3DS version all the way. And yeah, it's just... And yet at the same time, it doesn't feel... In places it does, but it, in some places... Like, some ways they they do a good job of making stuff not feel barren i think some of that has to do with the particle effects i mean kokiri force is such a perfect example because there's just stuff floating around everywhere 
that kind of breathes life and kind of, well, it makes just the place feel magical. And so I think they, they knew they were going to be pretty strictly limited and it does certainly look better than it was in the beta, which looked really chunky. Like, do we really want the, the tech tights looked so ridiculous. I, I think, I think despite the, the chunkiness of the game, like obviously, yeah, again, it's old, but I think, it makes the enemies in particular work. Maybe it's just the Resident Evil one through three effect on like the PlayStation where it's just like the, the kind of the, the lousier, like the harder it was to kind of discern what something was, the more kind of freaky it was. And I think that leads to a lot of what makes, you know, Ocarina of Majora's Mask so creepy in particular, because it applies to both games in that respect. Like, sure, the presentation is significantly held back by its datedness, and that's that much is obvious. Like, Link looks silly, and everyone has triangle noses. But somehow, yeah, it just it just works. It's something that does get lost a little bit in the 3DS remake is both the, the, so the changes to lighting, which for the most part are good. I think some of it's a concession to it being a portable game where you want to fight glare a bit more. But I think even the, the fogginess being gone sort of takes away from that as well. I think that's something that actually, like, despite being a limitation, works in kind of prodding the player onward to check things out. And it also makes places like the bottom of the well so much creepier. Yeah, for when you sure. Just, when you just, you just don't know. You know, it's not like the charm of the game has just been totally lost underneath, like, just old, low-poly visuals and whatnot. I think some of that just has to do with... I mean, if a, if a world is, well like, cleverly and well-designed... And like just the way it's like visually stimulating, even if it's not like, well, of course it's, you know, it's muddy looking now, but I think like it's not, it's definitely not lost in the original for sure. Yeah. You know, I think something that was really interesting to me, I was playing, I'd already beaten the game, um, but I was hanging out with my boyfriend and I finally got him to play some of the Breath of the Wild, <laughs> which has been a, a an ongoing battle, making him play more video games. Uh <laughs> And, uh, but I was playing, I started watching him play and then I was very restless. So I, I picked up Ocarina of Time 3D and was just running around Hyrule Field, like trying to kill some Poes and was like, you know, it's the only side quest that I don't care about ever completing, but I was like, whatever, you know, I'll, and I didn't complete it anyways, but I <laughs> at least got a few Poes. Uh, I just don't have the patience for it, but I was running around and doing that and going through the game. And I asked him, do you think this game looks old? And, you know, I was playing the remake and he looked at it and he said, yeah, it looks really old. And I was like <laughs> shocked because I'm so used to it that I was like, really? But it looks, you know, to me, it looks so good. <laughs> but he was like, no, like it reminds me of like, you know, it, it obviously like the textures are better and it looks better. But he's like, it reminds me of like Tomb Raider games and like games I used to play on like PlayStation 1, like way back in the day. And I thought that was really interesting. And it made me think a bit because when I climb I think you can really see that sort of gaminess especially in like Death Mountain where like there's no amount of coat of paint <laughs> that can really <laughs> stop that from being kind of a Super Mario 64 level yeah in a sense you know what I mean and in some of the areas like then I went to Lake Hilo and he was like oh well this looks great this looks much better 
But, you know, like, Hyrule Field looked blocky to him. And, like, Kakariko and Death Mountain looked very archaic and old to him. And I just <laughs> thought that was really interesting. And I guess even when you look at the remake, there definitely isn't a lot of integration between real natural landscapes and the game world. You know, and it's not like they could have done anything else with it. It's just more so an interesting observation. And also one of the things that I really like about the remake <laughs> is that it... It really retained that. I mean, even to the extent, I don't really know why these remakes need to retain textured on stairs, but they yeah. sure do. They did, because not sure. guess they didn't have the time to program in the the, the stair engine from Wim Waker. Yeah, <laughs> I don't, don't know. really know. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think that's really interesting. And the... I'm, a, I'm actually, I am a big pre-rendered background person. I like the way that it feels and I love the way it's one of the only things that's aged well about Final Fantasy VII in my opinion. Just from like a game control standpoint, not like the story or anything, just that like game is not <laughs> the most seamless, you know, it's a little rusty. The pre-rendered backgrounds in this game are bad. They were always bad. <laughs> they were never good. <laughs> Like, wow. I mean, I remember when the screenshots for the remake came out and I the the screenshots they chose were like basically pre-rendered background screenshots of like Castletown and stores. And I was blown away. I was like, wow, there's so much detail and there's so much stuff going on. And I think like that's kind of one of the areas of Ocarina that was always weak yeah. and doesn't hold up is just like the interior of houses and like Castletown, like all of those areas, is there some sort of weird charm to the backgrounds and the colors and the vibe? Maybe it gives off more of a realistic vibe in your head, sure. But it always felt really, I don't know, There, there's no definition to it. It's very bland and you, there's so much character and storytelling that gets missed out because every house looks the same. It's not really interesting. Yeah, and I think I feel like my nostalgia for Castletown only grew with having the 3DS version out because, well, especially because at like nighttime in particular, the the way the colors are brought out with the lighting and the way I think even weirdly playing it on the 3DS versus like seeing it uprezzed in an emulator, the way like the the different like lighting kind of gets a little fuzzy, kind of just. I don't know what it is, but I, I love it. Like now suddenly like just that shot standing by the happy mask shop at night in particular, it just really, really stands out to me so much more that I have like a weird nostalgia almost like it's like, how can I have nostalgia for the 3DS remake <laughs> that effectively replaced what I originally thought, but it kind of almost like fulfilled it at the same time. I just, I don't know. I love how that, that is handled. So uh, yeah, I, I think when I think about the old, the originals, like, especially if you're playing it emulated with like an upscaler to get the polygons to look clear, then it's just like, now it's really obvious that you're just walking around on a heavily downscaled <laughs> drawing of a town. Um, and it's, yeah, it's pretty, eh. every time I just, every time I pick up the 3DS version to play through stuff, it's like, wow, I'm actually like moving through a space that's actually like a 3d space now and i i love how that's hand i mean and and just having watched um i think it was a boundary break video looking over that too where it's just like wow there's just like 
like yeah i knew that the the hyrule castle was in the background but it's like they also kind of like they put the hills there they kind of like they put it at just the right distance at just the right size it's kind of that theme park sort of uh effect where they make like (laughs) universal studios or uh, islands of adventure where they make hogwarts castle look huge yeah that i i love that they put a lot of care and detail into that because it just makes I don't know. That's like my favorite part of the game is just going to Castle Town for the first time and then revisiting it. And then like, you know, you get towards the end of the game as an adult, you come back and just visually, dang it, I love <laughs> it really has just like revitalized my nostalgia for that part of the game just based on how like their their reinterpretation of it. And mm-hmm. which means they did a really good job. But <laughs> And it is an aspect that playing on the, on the N64, it's like, I, it's there and I can imagine it. It kind of makes me feel like a kid again because I am imagining it, but I know it's like, it's not what I'm looking at. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to talk about the character design in general. I'm a big fan of like 90s blonde Link. He's my favorite Link. <laughs> I mean, the N64 iteration is a little, <laughs> he's a little weird. Yeah. <laughs> He's kind of, you know, he doesn't have a lot of emotion going on. His eyes are really small. It's kind of strange. Yeah. Uh, But I love the art and I love the translation to the remake. I think it's pretty awesome. And I appreciate, I don't think, I feel like I remember when the remake came out and I saw the models for the NPCs and I was like, they didn't really do anything to them. (laughs) And now, now I look at it and I'm like, oh, they didn't do anything to him, and it's awesome. Yeah. Like, they shouldn't have touched them at all. Like, and there's something about the NPCs that, and I think if I remember to a degree, some of the art, or at least Link's art was based on his model. I don't know if the official art we see came and then the models were built around that or vice versa, but what I think is really interesting is that even if you look at the art, there's something very polygonal about that art and it translates really really well to like those little like kind of blocky n64 models and like the angular nature of it is really really interesting to me and i yeah i just think the npc design is super awesome it's very very memorable it's creepy it's cute it's fun it's a lot of things all at once and the enemies kind of tie into that too they did a good job of like creating stuff that feels mysterious, but isn't incredibly cartoony. And I think a huge thing, you know, you see that in the jump from like what Octoroks were before and what they were in the beta and then what they ended up being in the final game. Yeah, they hit this, um, especially when you look at like the artwork even, there's this weird, I think this goes for both the NPCs and monsters. It's a weird, there's a weird similarity to that, like between the two of them and in the terms of the design. And it's, it's kind of creepy that it is this way. They just, they're, it like strikes the right balance of like charming and yet like really creepy at the same time, but they're not creepy in like a grotesque sort of way. I mean, sometimes they are. I mean, everyone's still scarred by the great fairy just (laughs) design and the the scream she emits every time, but uh, I don't know. what it is because later games they either they either hit one spectrum or the other i mean wind waker is pretty blatant in that respect i mean majora's mask being it's a direct follow-up so it's 
going to take on most of those effects, but like, you know, they're either just more on the cute side, like the cute or goofy side, and they don't necessarily hit the highly intimidating. And when they try to go for creepy, it's kind of an all or nothing affair where it's like, oh, this is creepy, not because like the idea of a monster like that freaks me out, but just like the NPCs then just look ultra creepy. And I'm like, oh, I don't like, this is all just <laughs> gross. I don't like any of this. But Ocarina of Time, I, I think of especially like those two, the the two men like it, uh, dressed in blue and red that are always just in hysterics the whole time. Oh, the <laughs> the jugglers? The jugglers in Majora's Mask. Yeah, that's what they get reused as the jugglers in Majora's Mask who are just these two. Oh, I guess they don't juggle in, do they not juggle in the first game? No, they don't. They're just there. Oh One guy's. It's really crazy how much those games. <laughs> they like, mess with you. They do mess with it me. Mess, Majora's Mask just adds to the strangeness of their of the NPCs in the game. Yeah. Um, and in, in a very very good way that just retroactively makes them even weirder in Ocarina of Time. Every time I see the Kaku lady, I'm like, it's Andrew. I'm like, no, it's just the Kaku lady who's allergic to chickens. It's like, okay. But I I don't know. It's between the animations. The designs, like some, well, yeah, even like the Kaku lady is a perfect example of one who sits on a more normal, like, appearance. But then you have like the bazaar owner, and like the the shop owner, and then you have like the the shooting gallery guy. Yes. Yeah. Why are they so like his lips are freaking huge and his <laughs> arms are massive, and his torso is so strangely shaped? Like what? <laughs> is this man it's pretty good it's it's just strange you get this weird spectrum and it shouldn't work as well as it does but i think it's because it's an n64 game it just sits in that weird middle ground that makes it work and i love your comment on on the on the 3ds remake for that reason of just like like being disappointed but then being like ah, they didn't do anything good and and it just works. I mean, yeah, of course they upscaled the the polygons um, on them, of course, and they updated the textures a little bit. But they still they still have like even thinking in my mind and trying to picture them, I can't even remember them as anything other than their N sixty four counterparts. That's just what they are to me, and ah, that's what I like. I can't ever look at Ocarina and just be like, ah, yeah, it's just too old, and I don't know if I could play it these days. I mean, I mean, I still choose to play the 3DS remake, sure, but I think because of what they were going for with it, that it's like, it's it doesn't just somehow overtly obsolete the original that I, like, I couldn't just choose to actually go back and play it. Like, it's somehow like an outdated piece of garbage or something, because it's not. It's, it is old looking, but I don't know. It's those details that, that's like, that's why... In the 3DS remake, why so much of that is retained is because it just it just it worked. It worked really well for what it was, and I'm glad that that got retained so much while updating what definitely didn't work as well. So let's go ahead and talk about the music. So it's a pretty big departure in this game. You know, like it, it definitely weighs more on the atmospheric side this go around, and also there's just a ton more tracks as well. Yeah. So. This is kind of, for how expansive this soundtrack is, before we even get into just the merits of it itself, we have just Koji Kondo here. I was, you know, we we're thinking, oh, we have all these other people who've been accompanying, or at least have, you know, he's been around to help in some way, and there's somebody else who's at least going to come, come alongside later down the line, but he's, but it's just Koji Kondo for Ocarina. 
and which is kind of mind-blowing because really what marks him as such an amazing composer is not just like that he did so much with so little back in the early days back in the nes and the super nintendo but that we've transitioned to the n64 we're working with the kind of game that will have a completely different feeling and pacing to it because it's a 3d game and he had recognized that and was able to compose accordingly for it. And yet, even beyond just making those adjustments, there's also just a bunch of stuff that he does with the music that's kind of astounding. I mean, one of the things that's mentioned a lot is that the ocarina tunes are, I mean, they're, they're completely they're famous and just because they're so iconic and memorable. But also the fact that he's working with, what, five notes? <laughs> He's working with it's ridiculous. five notes. And sure, he, he goes beyond that when it comes to like how the rest of the piece plays out. But when it comes to the the purely the bit that you play as the player, somehow with just five notes makes some of the most iconic pieces in gaming history out there. And like every one of them is so memorable that like you can put me in the game several years after the last time I played it and I can sit down and like figure out all the different songs for each dungeon. And I don't, it's a bar that I don't think any game has ever hit again. The just, yeah, it feels like he really exhausted just about everything that you can play on an ocarina with those five notes in this game. He really nailed it. Yeah, it's it's insane. Just that alone draws so much praise. It very much deserved praise for it, and and it does. And it does definitely get that praise. And I I don't know. I don't know how he he does it or has that mind for it, but he does. And then what just makes him so good is how that's just one facet of this game's soundtrack. How I mean, even just besides the tunes that are are more standard fare, they are still exceptionally good what between kokiri forest goron city zora's domain zora's domain especially and then beyond that well like hyrule field in particular he he decides to play around with dynamic tracking where the depending on the kind of the actions taking place they affect like how the music you know switches tracks so the the main bit of it like the first bit the intro bit always plays the same but then like as long as you're just moving around it's it picks between i think it's like three or four different tracks that it kind of randomly plays from and then if you're near an enemy they also have then there's a whole branch of tracks that it plays for being around enemies which is you know not something you'll hear often but it's you know it's there and then you have also you have a whole which is this is crazy and this really ties into the atmosphere as well there's a whole branch of tracks dedicated to if you're just standing in place. If you're standing well, in place and yeah. not doing anything and just looking around, you get these really like just somber bits, like kind of almost kind of playful bits, but they're ah, they're kind of like that's like I almost deliberately sit still in Hyrule Field just to hear those bits. Well, and it like it elevates the area itself. It just makes it all feel so much more dynamic and since the day-night cycle is so quick, you know, it, there's not a lot going on in Hyrule Field, but it feels way less static because of everything else that's going on with the music. Getting to something beyond Hyrule Field, the, the dungeon themes, that's probably another big place of, of significant change, was moving from kind of the more upbeat, more fast-paced dungeon themes that are kind of mo mostly designed to set a feeling of just kind of unease on you 
in the process, but like in a sense that's like there's like an impending danger. There's like a strange sense of uh, it really does escape me trying to describe these. Not because they're like the most it's like the most amazing music and video game history, but there's just something to them. Like there's atmospheric, and then there's like there's just these elements to it that make them stick out. That like maybe I don't distinctly remember how the forest temple plays out or how the water temple plays out or the shadow temple. Like I don't like maybe specifically remember how these tunes proceed. Cause they're not, you're not really supposed to keep track with them, but the instrumentation in particular is a standout that I think really only Majora's mask gets anywhere towards like accomplishing the same thing. And I think, it, I think it's probably on the same level in that respect, but like we like the later on, I just think like it completely falters because it's missing just some kind of like secret sauce, whether it's just like that choice of instrumentation that really, really sticks with you because you remember the weird vocal noises, like from the forest temple in particular, yeah. or like the, the deep choirs from the, uh, from both like the fire temple and the shadow temple that, that makes them kind of over, like kind of mesh with each other a little bit. But in the case, like the water temple, you have the, I don't even know what kind of instrument that's kind of like, it's kind of like cascading down throughout the entire it's time. It's like out of like this little trill. Yeah. It's not melodies that you really remember. Like, and there are, you know, melodic areas like the Lost Woods, you know, or Lon Lon Ranch where like there's a huge emphasis on melody. But in the dungeons, it's more so like there's just those little moments. Like the Fire Temple has that sort of ding, 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 you know, that little like clinking sort of sound and you know the forest temple has you know those little notes that go up and down and up and down and up and down and it's things like that and like the spooky little little melody of the water temple that makes it feel mysterious there there's just enough there to really create a sense of place and have moments that you enjoy hearing again but you don't have to think about it if you don't want to think about it like the opening to the spirit temple yeah you know, like, just, like, that's great dungeon music. Yeah, it just, it gets out of the way when it needs to, but it really makes an impact, and it just suits the locations so well. Yeah. I think, I don't know why I just immediately started thinking of this, but I started thinking of, like, the enemy music. It's probably one of the only tracks I think is pretty kind of just okay. <laughs> it, yeah, it almost makes right. the enemies feel silly because of that, that especially that little, um... I don't know if it's like a like some like contra bass clarinet sound like that kind of i'm like oh this is just like it's almost borderline silly it's not meant to be but it's not it feels made for like the deku stick deku babas that just shake around yeah. aimlessly <laughs> <laughs> like, like, that's what i think about when i hear that music it's just yeah okay yeah <laughs> i think i think as a follow-up i think majora's mask does a much better job there actually really when it comes to both that and the the mini boss theme if we're if we're gonna do any kind of comparison, I actually think those are greater successes. That that's but those are probably one of the very few places I think Ocarina of Time has any kind of like it's like eh, it's okay. Um, well, the only thing that really gives me a jump scare is the start to the mini boss theme. It's just it's so loud and sudden when it happens, and then suddenly oh an enemy is upon you. And you're like oh, okay, jeez. <laughs> so and the and the boss music is is pretty good. I, I mean. I think the main boss theme, I think, is all right, but the fire boss theme, that's great. There's a reason that got reused, because it's awesome. Oh, the fire boss theme is so yeah. good. Yeah. That one's 
that one's pretty great and feels appropriately intimidating. Outside of that, then we got some a uh, couple reuses here from A Link to the Past. I think maybe in some part to be expected. I mean, of course, Zelda's Lullaby is clearly just an extrapolation of the original. Then you have Kakariko Village, which got you know this new instrumentation. I think it has between Child and Adult Link. I think they actually have different um, instrumentation. There, I could be wrong on that, but I, I've, maybe are you looking up right now? Yep. Because I'm, I... Yes, it is different. Oh my gosh. It is. It's the little details. I don't remember the specifics of it, just that it's always stuck out. It's the harmonica to the, to sort of, well, I don't know. I mean, they're N64 instruments, so it kind of sounds clarinetty. Yeah. I don't know what it is. It sounds... There's a guitar in the child one, and then the adult one has the strings. That's what it is. It's it's the guitar that that underlines the chords, whereas the strings do it in adult. Wow. I never... I can't believe... (laughs) I can't believe I've never realized that. Wow. You learn something new every day. (laughs) It's very, 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 very subtle. Uh, So that's, that's something I love... I love stuff like that. And it's not you've done a whole lot, but that's just a particular thing I think of that that sticks out. And then as far as like the the definitely the most foreign feeling stuff, there's not a lot. I mean, the dungeon themes kind of fit that well, but Gerudo, there's a reason Gerudo Valley is as popular as it is. It is the most un-Zelda-like piece that's still a Zelda song <laughs> that's in Ocarina of Time. And it's just, it's awesome. <laughs> I don't, this is not, this is a crude analysis, but that's all I have to say. It's just, it's great. I love its instrumentation. I love uh, the way it kicks off. And then it's just this, like, maybe real Spaniards are going to get upset at me. Spanish guitar? I don't know. It's it's N64 instrumentation, but it seems to be (laughs) driven and inspired in some way by that, even though we're kind of talking about a more kind of Middle Eastern inspired kind of society here so well i guess it kind of hits on a couple different things but either way i i love that it's plays for the majority of your time throughout that portion of the game just great i deliberately keep it daytime during grudo fortress to just hear it as i'm going in and out so yeah and then of course um probably fairly similar to a link to the past in that respect the the closing pieces are insane um but for different reasons Ganon's theme, Ganon's the the battle theme, is insane and is like the most just the collective scene of that. I think especially in the original is like the most like beautiful piece of just kind of atmospheric, just it's terrible phrasing. Just it's I don't know. It's just a great demonstration of how to build an incredibly compelling atmosphere. The way the the music is meant to be extremely intimidating, and then the way the, the like the low low choir comes in, and just underscores the whole thing. Oh man, I just it gives me jitters every time. And then it's followed, of course, by my my favorite rendition of Zelda's Zelda's theme that has the kind of like the 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 clarinet lead that goes into it, and it's just got those like kind of fantastic nostalgia chords as I call them kind of leading into it before the theme really kicks in and then it just kind of kind of rearranges it throughout the piece but I love (laughs) all of that I don't know I I feel like this has been kind of a crude analysis of this whole soundtrack but I don't know it's just it's great it's legendary like we said the same of A Link the Past and it's true but it's 
the kind of thing that for a 3D game especially and for just having to come to grips with the nature of a 3D game with the kind of pacing, the styling behind it and then so like with such insane success belt out this kind of soundtrack to me is just mind-blowing that I don't it's hard to be articulate about it. It's hard to to analyze it unless I was like a music major at that point, which I'm I'm not. I play a lot of instruments, but that doesn't <laughs> music major I am not. I just yeah, I don't I don't I don't have much else to say besides that, really. I'm just gonna give one last shout out to what might be actually weirdly my favorite piece in the game in a way, which is actually uh the Deku Tree theme hmm. that plays when he's explaining stuff to you. Man, I don't know, it just kinda gets me it just it really sets up the tone for the game so well and it's got such mystery to it and such a sense of foreboding i don't know it really casts that whole area in a different light where it could have been really cutesy but the incorporation of that theme and like the deku tree's death and it's not even like a shocking like you're motivated now it's just kind of like acceptance and resignation and I don't know, I find it really fascinating. So let's talk about what this game draws on from previous entries and what it introduces going forward. Obviously, a huge part of that is the fact that it's the first 3D Zelda game. But just looking beyond that, especially I think a really interesting argument to look at and sort of dissect is this idea that Ocarina of Time is basically the same game as A Link to the Past made 3D. So what do you think about that, Kyler? Yeah, I've always found that, I don't know if I would call it perplexing. I, I wouldn't say it's off base. I mean, the, the general format is there, the formula's there, the items are carryovers in many ways. Um, I think it, the game being 3D fundamentally changes that. Like, yeah, if you broke down a synopsis of the game, then sure, but... I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? That's kind of my, my immediate... There's more to it than that, but I think yeah. that's kind of my immediate thoughts on it. Is I'm like, eh, it's, it's there, but it's not like a thing I would... That devalues the game in my eyes or is even like a completely valid charge against it. Yeah, it definitely takes some of the structure, although even looking from the development history, I'm not sure if that was a structure that they really imposed from the get-go or maybe if they were sort of floundering looking for how they should make a video game at the end of the day if they just sort of came back to that and they said well we know that that works and that's effective so maybe it just kind of gave them instead of being this thing that it's like oh this is the way that Zelda has to be it could have also just been some sort of guiding formula because you see Link's Awakening and Link's Awakening doesn't have that same structure either Um, right I think for me it kind of gets this rap for being like oh well it's the two worlds gimmick all over again. But I also don't think that the two worlds gimmick is as pronounced (laughs) as it kind of gets made out to be every now and then. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it it comes and it goes and its weight within the game world, you know, varies. But I also think if we're talking about the two worlds mechanic, I mean, I think that Ocarina of Time just does it better. It doesn't, obviously it doesn't change the overworld from a structural standpoint. But to be fair, Link to the Past didn't alter that structure so much to the point that it was literally able to be loaded as a palette swap. Yeah. So it's not like 
it was this huge thing. Like it was kind of, I don't want to say a lazy choice. It was a space saving choice when they made it. And it was also kind of a space saving choice here as well. But I do think that tonally it's much more interesting and impactful than the dark world from a link to the past. Cause you get to explore more and you get to experience sort of a coming of age story get to experience the world through an eyes of a child and then come to know it, see it be cast in evil. And it's like, it's not the most profound story, but sometimes with games, I think when you allow players to sort of live out scenarios, they can bring their own profound ideas to it and they can elevate it by playing the game. And I think that's sort of the case here where there's a lot you can mine from the experience from like you playing the game and bringing something to it that I don't necessarily think is there when you play Link to the Past. Yeah, and when I think of, um, I think back to my remarks on Link to the Past where I was commenting that this was the beginning of Epic Zelda, Ocarina of Time is really the one that solidifies it. And in my mind, when I think back to Link to the Past, I think just by the nature of being a, a top-down 2D game, that's not that it's a bad thing. It's just surely, it's simply just the ways in which a game can immerse you specifically are going to be fundamentally different between the two forms of medium. And so I think when like I think Link to the Past tries and succeeds to present itself as epic and Ocarina of Time is simply just it just is epic. It just is. Um and I mean that in the most traditional definition of that word epic. It really is something that just simply that just provides that feeling. It doesn't have, you know, compared to compared to like you know, Link to the Past's bombastic opening and um, and just, like, you know, clashing of worlds ending, in a sense, with the, you know, which is that whole fight. That's probably the only thing Ocarina of Time has in common with the whole opening-closing, is that the closing is somewhat similar, but it's, um, but it's, even its ending is a lot more somber. There, There's a bit more, um, I don't know if I would even call it subtlety, but there's... Like there's a definitely a different kind of presentation and like a like a theme that undergirds. It's kind of the melancholy. Yeah, it's a bit more like a bit more melancholy, less like bombastic, and that's really not even a thing against a link the past. That's a part that makes its introduction and its endings really really good. Yeah, I think that's where you see sort of that Link's Awakening influence sort of stirring into the pot, taking like sort of this straightforward adventure and casting a different light on it and part of that is the time mechanic itself but you know it's it's one of those things that like inherently that idea the passage of time is always going to stir up those sort of nostalgic you know somber feelings i I think of like the kind of through line that link to the past had where like generally i felt that again the start the start and the end were amazing but the middle of the game doesn't necessarily hold it as well i mean at certain parts of it do but otherwise it kind of just like the way it proceeds feels kind of standard fare. Um, whereas Ocarina, it feels like that kind of through line they're going for at the start, they had the intentions of trying to push through the whole game. It somewhat kind of falters later towards like the, you know, late adult portion of the game. But I think they managed to keep things going long enough that that, that uh, kind of what they were getting at from the beginning managed to hook all the way through to the end. And I think it manages to kind of sting a lot more at the end when the when the end comes. And I think that's, I think it's a really big difference between A Link to the Past and Ocarina is the attempting to present and succeeding generally, and Ocarina simply having an idea that they kind of pull through with the whole way through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could call it A Link to the Past 3D, but I think 
I, I really, I think with a lot of things, every time I revisit Ocarina of Time, it's it's all in the details that end up making it hold up. Like whenever you compare it to any other game in this series, you're just like, well, why? Because isn't this game just obsolete? And it's like, well, surprisingly, no. There's just a lot of stuff that they just did well with it. And yeah, just immediately comparing it to Link the Past, which is easy to do, and that just on the basis of its structure, I think that's probably one of the biggest differences is simply its uh, ex- execution. Yeah, I think one of those little things, and I'm just going to keep coming back to the child adult, but it, it's something that shouldn't be replicated, but it's something that really works here because of how it allows them to set up the game world and then sort of come back and mine it for preemptive nostalgia. And, you know, the relationships between you and the sages aren't particularly deep, but they are relationships that actually exist in the game. You know, there are characters that you can identify and have relationships with, you know, in within these different communities and races. And I think that that's, I don't know, something that makes the game feel more complete to me. And the way that you gain knowledge and gain power from each place, you know, the way that you get the Goron bracelets, you can lift bombs and you you know, get the silver scales, you can die deeper, you know, literally these things that you get from these different cultures that then empower you with something from them on your journey. It's just little pieces like that that I think are intertwined really nicely. Yeah, the sages being tied to people. I think really just that entire concept, first off of the introduction of these kind of brand new races that become effectively solidified in the series, and then also having kind of significant members of those races being people that you have some degree of interaction with and then tying them to part of your objective on top of everything else. I think that does a lot to really distinguish them from, you know, either just try four shards in the original or simply saving the maidens who were just kind of, I mean, they were nameless maidens. They were just said to be the daughters or granddaughters of sages and whatnot. But here they're people, they're people that you know personally. Yeah. And it sort of has like kind of, I don't know if I would completely say an anime bent, compared to something like A Link to the Past. And maybe you see a little bit of this with like the creativity of the character design in Link's Awakening. But to go from like the Zoras being enemies and like the only really like interactable people being like Highlands or like people in the dark world who like look all misshapen and whatnot, that Mm -hmm. the idea to have sort of these hubs with like Zoras and Gorons and Gerudo it feels really obvious now because we've lived with it for so long, but like that's 100% not a given. Like, I think people don't always give this game enough credit in the fact that it really like gave birth to like so many different ideas of like world building in the story. And like Link to the Past, Link's Awakening, like those games exist. They've got official artwork. But to see all that stuff rendered in a 3D world that you can explore, it makes it all so much more sort of tangible to you. Yeah, and that's a good word. It's, it's much more memorable that way. So it's like, it kind of feels like we're seeing it all for the first time, even though it's not, because we're seeing it in a way that's closer to our perception of reality, even though it's kind of blocky. You can't overstate the value of the Z-axis, of seeing things in the distance, and of being able to look around for yourself. It's a different realm of curiosity than exploring the next screen. I'm not saying one is better than the other because you definitely lose stuff here, especially mm-hmm. on the world map and the pace of combat and the pace of enemy confrontation. Like this game is very segmented. It's very compartmentalized in that way between combat 
and exploring and talking to people, kind of like uh, Zelda 2 actually was. <laughs> You know, where you have the towns. Oh, that's true. And then you have the map, and then you have the battles. It's, you know, it's more elegant than that, but it's similar. It's not like A Link to the Past. In hindsight, is Zelda 2 a good game? No. (laughs) (laughs) It's still bad. It's still bad. So, perspective matters, and so does presentation and execution. So... (laughs) Yeah, I, I I have thought about, and I think especially just regarding 3D Zelda, it feels like, yeah, one of the big failings, or at least things lost in transition, was that kind of flow between the dungeon being the dungeon and enemy encounters being in there as part of the dungeon. This is something that 2D games continue to get universally right, and something that 3D games, I think that 3D games would get better over time. I wouldn't even say that Ocarina is, is like particularly bad. It's just that it, um, especially without having a movable camera, they're just, they just couldn't design around an idea of just like, okay, the, the dungeon elements are going to make things more dangerous. But the, 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 uh, the pacing simply just doesn't allow for it either. Whether that's like a wholly outright bad thing. I mean, I enjoy the combat in this game. So, and there's plenty of good combat encounters and some places where the enemies are more traditional in their presentation, they can they can kind of pose as obstacles that actually fit the environment well. But say any of your one-on-one encounters, like Stolfos and Iron Knuckles, they're almost always in isolated environments. Yeah. Um, because they just, like, for one, just the time you spend on them might be the time that you kill a mini-boss or boss in, like, A Link to the Past. <laughs> so True. that makes a big difference, and I've... I've, I don't know if I could say I've had a problem with it, but it's definitely something that would affect dungeon and design in a way that I think some parts makes it less compelling than, say, like, maybe, like, the Oracle games, where it just seems like both aspects seem to cut, like, to segment, like, cover, come together really, really well, or just really any of the 2D games. I mean, even just think about the original Legend of Zelda, that was, like, the closest to pure combat challenges you get, really, but... Even anything like A Link to the Past with what it does or, you know, Link's Awakening onward, you know, they've always kind of gotten those two aspects to intersect a lot and be more combat heavy. And I feel like Ocarina of Time at least has a pretty good compromise where I feel as some later games might have, it's just like, well, here's the puzzles or defeating the enemies, your access, your way to getting access to the puzzles. But once you do that, yeah, there's no, there's very little intersection apart from ways that they're designed into the puzzle somehow so that's something that i felt but i've kind of i guess i've just kind of accepted it too as what it is as something that's just comes from just the nature of the design itself i think it's pretty successful in the dungeons i think it's you know it's less successful in hyrule field but i, I mean i kind of say that just sort of as like a you know, kind of a, you gotta point it out that the <laughs> hub like is kind of empty and like, but the thing about it really for me is that I, I, it's a thing that I've noticed and it's a thing that I think is worth pointing out and it's a valid criticism and discussion to have. Personally, as the player, I don't care. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, part of it is for one thing that the music is so good that when I'm running around Hyrule Field, they like just listening to it. So I think that's yeah. kind of a pro for me. I also think that there could have been, and maybe this is, again, this could be falling into territory of asking for too much. And I, I like that Kakariko is still 
civilized in the adult timeline. It kind of needs to be because you've lost Castletown. So it sort of becomes this hub and, you know, it totally works that way. But it also could have been interesting when you first go to it, at least to have sort of like the Kokiri forest thing where it's been overrun a little bit. Like, yeah, I mean, how wild, like for seeing Redeads in Castletown, which, you know, they don't really chase after you or anything. So it's like it's more for shock value than anything else. And like, why would you kill them? But if you could have had sort of that moment in Kakariko Village and seen like Gibdos going around or something or seen them literally like crawling through the graveyard out of the graves, I don't know, that would have been pretty dope. I guess yeah. they wouldn't have wanted to overwhelm it because you got the Fire Temple and then like the Shadow Temple, but I don't know, they could have thrown something in the graveyard maybe or just an event so it wasn't something you had to like clear the temple to beat, but it was just a little moment that you like had sort of a mission-based thing to like clear the town before you could get the song or whatever. I think just like a little moment like that. And I'm not all like gung-ho about, I want more scripted stuff in my Zelda games, but I don't know. I think that would have been pretty sick. <laughs> that would be cool. Maybe it is. I mean, you might be right that it's asking for too much, but I think I think something a little more to be like, the seal's been broken on the well and Bongo Bongo got out. And then he immediately retreated to the Shadow Temple to lock himself away in a room. <laughs> yeah, I just, that's such a cool scene. And it's kind of a bummer that you don't really get anything out of it. Yeah. And you don't really even get like a huge motivation to like go solve the problem. But, you know, I mean, it's a little, it's a nitpick. And, I don't know. <laughs> there are certain things with this game that, no, I don't think they should ever truly remake it. But as much as people say that they've just been remaking this game over and over, there are all kinds of little details. It's the style of it. I don't know. It's just different. Yeah. <laughs> it's very... Here's the thing I'll say about it. I think it feels very full. Everywhere you go, there's a different race. There's something to do. The environments are very, you know, different and sort of localized in that way. And I think that that's still something very special to this game is how iconic those depictions of the Zoras and the Gerudo and the Gorons are. It's just very special in that way that Castletown is there. Just, you know, and also it's because of that adult timeline again that they're able to sort of set the world on fire in half the game and keep it functioning in the other half. So you have a version where you get to see it full of life and you can always go back to that. And then you also have the version where you have to like kind of free it from evil. And it's kind of, it's really nice to get the best of both worlds from that. Yeah, I've always really liked that aspect. It's also what makes, um, it's also what made Sheik being a jerk and blocking your way back to becoming a kid such a strong moment. Because it's like, are you kidding me? So now I have to deal with this? Oh my gosh, it was so stressful. Oh, it's just like you have to now go revisit the world and go to these harder, considerably more difficult temples now Yeah. in these areas that you used to, you were familiar with and seemed so innocent and are horribly corrupted and you have to reclaim them effectively. Yeah, I think that's one of those good examples of limiting a player's movement and sort of gatekeeping something and saying, hey, you've got to complete this thing. I think it doesn't really feel like the game is yelling at me. It just feels like a more powerful moment, sort of like a point of no return. And it totally works for me. Every time I play the game, I'm always like, have you done everything you need to do as a child? And it's like, if I go beat the forest temple first, it's not like it's going to take that long, but it really feels like this big leap. Like, I'm going to be an adult now. <laughs> I have to make a big decision. <laughs> Yeah. It's very nerve-wracking. Which is just, I don't know, even just thematically, 
coinciding with like becoming an adult like literally in that sense there's i don't know i i like there's like a kind of synchrony like synchronicity between the necessity to become an adult like the inevitability of it in a way that just is a little too it's a little too real yes (laughs) and so i i think that's probably why it's been such a strong point to so many people is for that reason is just that the game is in completely in sync with like real life in that sense i mean in a in a fantasy setting in a way but like I think just the way it's tied together, then it's like, okay, you're an adult now. Now you have to handle big adult responsibilities. Like, quite literally, you are now saving the world from the complete peril it's in. It's like, okay. Yeah, and I think a lot of people can really relate to it. When you're a kid and you're playing it, it's very, it's scary and it's exciting to grow up and be an adult and sort of put that hat on. And as an adult, you know, you might get, I don't know, I feel like as a kid, I was kind of like bored through the child part and now as an adult, I think maybe it's a little more interesting to me. It just kind of, I don't know, it's curious to look at it through that lens. Yeah, going back to Mark on your Hyrule Field thing, I was just thinking of like kind of the nature of kind of more open versus like focused environments. And I think, yeah, if you wanted to specifically target Hyrule Field and criticize it for that, I think it's fair. And in a sense, yeah, sure. Like, I think I feel... I think I feel the pain of moving around more as adult Link, which is why I try to get the sword as fast as possible. Like as a kid, I kind of, especially on this playthrough, I just made it a point that I'm like, if I'm getting tired of like trying to go out of my way to get all these heart pieces, I'm just going to come back later. I'll just do it later when I have warp songs. But just thinking about it then, like when you go into the other areas where like Hyrule Field, Field music is still playing, they tend to, they kind of strike this nice balance of what Nintendo was kind of, you know, continuing to work on at the time, which was like they're really, they're 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 masters at their focus design, which is to say, like, when it comes to building specific areas and challenges, they they seem to like they just have a really good grip on that, and I think Mario sixty four is a has a, you know there's a lot to thank for Mario's on Mario sixty four is part for that, but I think I just like that there's just kind of contrast, like you go to Zora's River, you go to you know Death Mountain Trail. Not so, not as much Gerudo Valley, but I guess the entire stretch of Gerudo Valley through the um, desert wasteland, just all those kind of areas that have that kind of focused design and yet still feel kind of open. I think they make like a kind of a good contrast that that I'm okay with Hyrule Field just being the hub that it is. I wish there was a little more layers to it. I wish there was a little more dense, but why I've never had as much of a problem with it is because of the way it's being framed here that the idea behind it is for you to look uh, at like out at some other part of the field, see something of interest and then cross it to go get over there. And then, then you start kind of engaging with more of the more mechanical aspects of the game. Yeah. I think, I think it serves as a really good contrast, even if like the, the aspect of actually traveling it is not all, the most exciting thing, but then also is what makes the horse member so memorable in people's minds is that it's like you got the horse you can do this a lot faster. You have the warp songs. You have a couple key points you can kind of get around on. And the, even the trading side quest kind of makes really good use of the horse. So, And even according to like the development itself, that the idea for the field came from, well, if there's going to be a horse in the game, you need somewhere to ride the horse. So I don't think it was necessarily a given on having that sort of... I think that we should value it for what it did to show that you can have a connected 3D world that goes from place to place, 
you know, it has different points where it crosses over and it's not just selecting something from a menu. They really showed that it was viable, it was possible, and that people really, really enjoyed it. So I value it for that. And yeah, I mean, it, the music's great. I like spending time in it. It's very peaceful and kind of nostalgic <laughs> for me. I don't know. It's one of the things that I think of first when I think of the game. But ultimately, we can kind of pull it apart forever, but ultimately I just sort of fall back on, I feel like they sort of did the best that they could. Yeah, they just, they did the most with what they had. They were experimenting. They were definitely trying some things. And I think that the sort of like closed sort of design, the very like pathways, they didn't really have many other choices Yeah. that they could make. And I think it's, good that they made the choice that you have a lot of places that you can go that honestly are not locked off to you and in some ways actually like less locked off than some of its predecessors actually yeah i don't know i i I think the game has a clear has a clear focus even for a game that's structured the same way as link to the past that has a similar kind of linearity to it the driving force it's it's kind of it's taking from link's awakening where your curiosity kind of drew, drove you to understand, like kind of get invested in the island, but then taking that and making that the focal point, it, Ocarina of Time made that like the focal point of this game of of you know of itself, where everything is driven by the player seeking out information or understanding something, and so the game not being locked tight down is absolutely like even if it is to find out, it's like okay, well I'm I'm here. And there's not much for now, but maybe I'll come by here later if something comes, if something kind of clicks in my mind. It has almost a Metroid-y kind of feel to the way you can come by certain areas, but you can't necessarily do much with them. And, well, you know, with less trying to deliberately obscure, not like artificially or abstractly, but just more so like it's just clear that you can't do anything here, but that there's something is here. And I simply like that that is a thing that's presented to the player rather than it just seems like anything that's going to be new is just going to be mandatory at that point. I think that there's always going to be yes. like, you you just, you don't know for sure when you're first seeing certain things without either certain items in hand or just within not being an adult or being a child either or, that I just like that your curiosity is piqued by these things um, and that you kind of just, they get you on, they get, you know, on your mind and you think about, okay, when, when will I be here again? Can I come back here some this time and... And the game will just be like, oh, yeah, right here. And you, you take that shortcut from Zora's Domain into Lake Hylia, and you're like, oh, okay, I'm back here again, and now I can access this shortcut that I was wondering if this was a thing at all, and I can get that bottle that looked like a thing, you know, if you were curious and you started looking around more. And so the idea is just that you have the choice in the matter. It doesn't mean that you're going to make the choice that's going to progress the game, but the idea is you are informing yourself more by doing so and then later it, it really it honestly probably captures the spirit of the original probably better than even link to the past did just by the way it kind of executes these things you might if you're trying to go for point to point level of freedom no and i mean there's nothing that really comes close to the original legend of zelda except for breath of the wild in that respect there's there is literally no other game in the series that otherwise gets near that but i think even comparing comparing to a link to the past i feel like that idea of exploration even though it's like, it seems like it's very, I mean, the structure is linear. It's just, it's deceptively 
really provoking that sense in, uh, of curiosity and desire to explore really, really well. It does such a good job with that, which, I mean, is kind of astounding for the first 3D game in the series that they get this idea of kind of putting landmarks in the distance and kind of drawing you towards them. Yeah, I think you made such a great point about how the game doesn't really railroad you into anything. You're not really hit with a cutscene and it says, stop everything, you have to go and do this now. Like, even when Zelda throws the Ocarina of Time to you and it's like, go to the Temple of Time, you don't have to. Yep, you don't even have to pick up the Ocarina. <laughs> no, you could just spend hours like doing whatever if you wanted to. Like, the game is linear in the sense that it'll be like, hey, maybe you should go to the forest. Time to go to the forest. Maybe you should get the hook shot so that you can go to the forest and it will, you know, and it'll yell at you a little bit and say, go do these things. Yeah. But what it doesn't do is have you enter the next area and then it'd be like cutscene. Oh, this is happening in the area. Someone comes up to you and says, help us. This is happening in the area. And then <laughs> now you're in some sort of event and you have to do this thing. And if you try to leave the area, something will yell at you. It's none of that. <laughs> None of that happens. Yeah. Like the most you ever get that is like Kokiri Forest where it's like, hey, you're not allowed to leave the forest or hey, you can't you leave, need a sword you'll die. Shield. Yeah. <laughs> Which is mysterious in its own right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, just a little bit of weight to that. But yeah. other than that, you know, it's like you, you always have the ability to walk away. If you want to get items out of the dungeons and leave with them and go do something else with them, like you can do that if you want to. Yeah, it just it's the it's the question of choice at the end of the day and I, that's why i always thought just trying to think back with you know with the advent of breath of the wild being on hand and just being like man are the 3d zeldas just like obsolete now and it's like kind of on one hand but some of them i would say no just realizing and, and thinking about that in like thinking about ocarina of time in this kind of light now with you know with the light with you know the, again the advent of breath of the wild being out that even then, they were still focused on this objective of exploration being the focal point. I think about trying to design a game today that's like a modern Ocarina of Time, and the idea is, well, one, it's just looking like a blatant copy of Ocarina of Time when I think about it in my head. But then two, it's just like, wow, this is a nightmare. How did they, like, how did they balance this? How did they trust the player enough to, to find things that might seem kind of abstract or just try to ask for this kind of information. I don't, how did they, how did they do it? <laughs> like Link to the Past playing it is, a, is just a fairly, it's a fairly obvious game. And that, you know, by a large, we, we attribute to the whole labeling where all the MacGuffins are on the map is kind of a mistake. But even, even besides that, it's not so much that it's that Ocarina of Time as a really big difference like, Link to the Past is like, okay, your objective is you'll definitely need the Master Sword to get to go fight Aghanim. And you'll definitely need the Maidens to get into Ganon's castle. Ocarina of Time really alludes to a bunch of different things that are going to become important. But your most immediate objective is what ultimately becomes your focus. But then you don't under, like, you start to get there and you're like, wait, there's a couple caveats to this, isn't there? And there is. So, and that's, I don't know, that makes it kind of, it makes it exciting to look forward to because you, you have things, you don't necessarily know what to expect when you get there. And it's like, all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, the guy doesn't feel like handing over the, the Ruby because he's not happy about his current situation that Ganondorf caused. And, uh, I mean, if for him to even want to talk to you, 
you have to play him a song that he likes. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to deal with a couple of caveats before you really get to the dungeon. And then you do that and he's like, hey, that was a pretty good thing you did there. And then you just went ahead and, and did it. So here you go. And then the other is the, the setup for Jabba Jabba is actually kind of great. Or even just the, the idea of it is just like, hey, our Dee Dee ate our princess. That's not cool. Um, <laughs> but then she wants nothing to do with you. So you have to carry her throughout the dungeon. So it's just like this way. I don't know. It's it's a it's a game that's got a lot of surprise hidden away in like the the main objectives i think it's the only part where the adult timeline falters but that's because it follows into a more falls into a more like kind of traditional arc at that point where it's like okay it's evident what needs to happen at this point but even with that in mind when Sheik first comes to you she's kind of telling you like yeah you need to do this this and this and things are still not like quite as they seem either i mean the process of gathering the sages and well even that's not even evident as to who they are and that starts to come up as a surprise, at least until the pattern's kind of recognized, and you're like, okay. And then they're, they're like, okay, here's a new character, and then she's a sage, and you're like, oh, okay, cool. But I just, I don't know. The element of surprise helps a lot, in, and maybe it's not so much exciting when you come back to it after your third or your 23rd playthrough. <laughs> um, yeah, sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, but I, it's something I, uh, just thinking about it more, how much you know, how much the element of surprise plays a really, in a really subtle way here. Like things aren't just like obvious, like the, you're, you're given the objective and it's just not, it's not just obvious the way it's going to play out. Like it's still got, you're going to still accomplish it. It's not like something's going to suddenly change. Gendorf doesn't really, you know, he's not like an active agent in the plot besides what he causes that you have to undo. But outside of that, it's like, you're just, it's a matter of just finding out how you're going to accomplish what you're going to do. And the, how that pans out is kind of just a thing that you get to explore. You know, there's, I don't know. And I just, I just like that. I really, I I can really admire Ocarina of Time for that reason. So this game is going to continue to loom large and be a huge part of our discussions moving forward. But for the sake of being able to finish one podcast episode, I think we should go ahead and move on to what we remember the most. So I guess I'll start and say that for me, I mean, it's kind of tied with like the, ah, you get on, onto Hyrule Field and, you know, the stalled children moment, but, you know, everyone says that, so, because it's really awesome. Uh, for me, I will say it's becoming adult Link and when you first step out of the Temple of Time and you're like, oh no, like this place has gone to hell. And then you walk out and there are re-deads everywhere and that's really terrifying. <laughs> and you just get the heck out of there and you get into Hyrule and there's a broken bridge and it's great. And like, that's your new status quo. And it was always so impactful for me as a kid that I dreaded it, that it was like, whenever I left and like entered Castletown and like now I'm like, whatever, like, I don't, you know, they're not going to bother me. <laughs> you know, if you don't bother them, they don't bother you. Uh, but man, as a kid, I would just feel like I was on a full dead sprint getting through there. It was such a big deal. <laughs> it was really intense. And I don't know. Yeah, definitely just reduds in general and anything I had to do involving the graveyard, the well, the shadow temple, yeah, this game really spooked me as a kid. <laughs> and for a long time after that. 
I would say even with the 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 shock gone, I still like walking into a destroyed castle town. The it only just kind of like creates in me that sense of longing of just like oh my gosh, I just want to see this not be like this. Like it just frustrates me that it's just always like that's just what it's gonna be. Like you won't. There's no visiting, you know, innocent castle town as an adult. It's just gone, and. I think that's why it sticks out so much in particular. You know, having that conversation about the fact that you won't get to see an innocent Castletown as an adult. Like one of the things that's most interesting to me about this game on replay was the idea that Zelda had this plan and it totally failed. And my dream as a kid has always been to have you know, sort of a side game where you get to play as Sheik because I always found Sheik so interesting, but I also found the idea of what Zelda has been through while you've just been asleep. Yeah. Like, Zelda didn't get to go hang out in some chamber of sages, wait until she was old enough. Like, she had to just do the thing. That's a lot. She had to be she, trained up as a Sheik. Yeah, she always gets the short end of the stick. She's just quietly always having to be, like, the biggest, baddest lady in town. So, yeah, <laughs> I'll just point that out that it's so interesting that in her, at the very end of the game, she has to sacrifice her own happiness again. She has to deal with, like, the state of her ruined world and send Link back to a time where he can grow up like a normal person. And she's like, all right, I have to deal with this cluster all on my own. Like, bye, Link. Like, man, that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> man. It's like it's like a little bit of subtlety of like, wow, is Zelda really the strongest character in this in this universe, I guess? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the best to deal with a lot. Honorary Triforce of Power goes to Zelda. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know what? I, I'm gonna change my answer. Oh. Uh, boom. All right. What do you remember? <laughs> I'm gonna be unconventional, but I think it's just because all the other moments are embedded in memory, but also because I have just known how to work through them that they don't freak me as much that I, I won't be picking them as much, but the Ganon fight, the Ganon fight and the ending of the game, like the Ganon fight, like I love the place it takes place in. The music is great. The, the way the lighting is handled, like it goes, especially when it goes dark during his big supercharge attack is really cool. And oh my goodness. And the 3DS remake, they went absolutely ham on this room <laughs> they, they did they're, it's they're so room, good it's so crazy you're like is this a 3ds game this is actually like incredibly impressive what they did with that they made it they made that just the tower climb and just the top the coolest part of the game and i, and I love all that but playing tennis with them again is kind of a letdown but the ganon <laughs> fight even if the ganon fight is really really mechanically simple i mean there's really not not much to it there is Ganon either hits you with his big swords for mega damage or you get you manage to get behind him and then hit him and you do that a bunch. It's it's not it's not impressive, but simply the way it is framed, the everything comes together in such an amazingly perfect way um, that I still get I still get shivers in that fight, even when I'm like not necessarily I'm not even really afraid of Ganon at all. It's just merely and I think it's it's done better in the in the original. I think because the lighting is just a little bit too bright in the in the uh, 3ds remake, and it's kind of mm -hmm. a bummer. 
Yeah. Um, it's the only thing they really kind of goof is the lighting. It being dark where you can only kind of get a silhouette of him and then, his, of course, his blade trails when he swings him. Oh, it's so good. Oh, the sound design, the the lightning. I like the lightning being stuff that lights up the scene. They, like, every, it's like everything they learned got put into one single big moment. And it's such a, it's such a good payoff for a final fight. This is kind of just before the times of, like, thing, at least JRPGs having this problem more than anything, going into, like, 50 forms or whatever. But it's just, <laughs> it's just perfect here because, oh, well, it, it's also punctuated so well because it's immediately following after the tower collapses. And of, of which, I guess if I had one question, it's like, okay, you can't, if you look at what demolition experts do, they, they're, like, pretty far from this destruction of the site, but they're like, oh, we got this little ledge right outside the tower and we're totally cool even though this huge tower is collapsed i don't know i don't know there's no yeah, reason well, there's live, no but... reason that it should be flat on a 2d <laughs> plane to form a perfect battlefield either but we just accept <laughs> yeah. it oh <laughs> uh, yeah it's silly but they do at least they they do tie in some of the debris being destructible by ganon himself to collect stuff which i think is the fact that they introduced that kind of subtlety, like, you know, a mechanic. I totally right forgot there, about that too. It's a thing that you, yeah, you just don't think about it, but it is a thing that if you're running around and like maybe naturally your thought process might be to try to hide and then he destroys the cover, which is terrifying, but then you find stuff inside, which kind of makes two different things click at the same time. And it's, it's awesome. And I'll never, I never necessarily need this stuff, but I love just seeing it happen because it's just, I don't know, it's just crazy. It adds to the atmosphere of the fight. And uh, you're like you're encased in this giant firewall, and like Zelda like screams in agony when you get hurt, and it just adds to it. It adds like the like this is really like the fight of your life, and so I love how all of this ties together, and it just makes the end of the game. Man, I love. I might like in a purely musical sense, and the way the credits are presented in the Link to the Past, I I I love like there's just a very warm, nostalgic feeling for it. But there, like, there's a really just true, perfect, like, resolution that comes with Ocarina of Time with its final fight and with uh, the credits of this game. I man, I love it. I love how this game ends, and I don't think I, I think the reason I don't get tired of that is I'm so used to and comfortable with the entire experience of running through and just fully completing the game. But you only like you know you run through Hyrule Field a million times, you run through all these areas a million times, but you only fight. Ganon once at the end of your playthrough and that's and that's it that's what you do and I think just that it can punctuate such a long playthrough in such a way like that is awesome to me episode, we'll get trapped in the time loop of Majora's Mask. How does the cult classic hold up in the light? We'll find out next time on A Retrospective.